Chapter 8 of The Story of George Fox by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Richard Vogel in England's Worst Prison. After the interview with Cromwell and the powerful meetings in London, Fox started off again upon his almost incessant travels. Probably no man in the 17th century knew all of England as intimately as he did. He visited not only the great cities, but the small towns, villages, and hamlets as well. On horseback or on foot, he traveled both the great roads and the country lanes. He met and talked with all types of people, and he saw all sides of life. Leaving London, he went first to a great meeting in Luton, in Bedfordshire. He declared God's eternal truth, and people generally were convinced. He soon returned to London, where friends were finally established in the truth, and then he took a journey through the towns and villages of Kent. In his wide journeyings, he went to Colchester and had a brief farewell visit with James Parnell, a short time before that brave young martyr's life was ended. It was at this period, sometime in the autumn of 1655, that he rode through the crowd of Cambridge students who could not unhorse him, and who wondered at the shine on his face. Not long after this, when he was riding with some of his companions through the famous town of Warwick, the rude people gathered with stones and sticks to give them a rough passage through the streets. The journal tells the story well. One of them took hold of my horse's bridle and broke it, but the horse, drawing back, threw him under him. Though the bailiff saw this, yet he did not stop nor so much as rebuke the rude multitude, so that it was much we were not slain or hurt in the streets, for the people threw stones and struck at us as we rode along the town. When we were quite out of the town, I told friends it was upon me from the Lord that I must go back into the town again. So the account goes on, I passed through the market in the dreadful power of God declaring the word of life to them, and John Crook, one of his companions, followed me. Some struck at me, but the Lord's power was over them and gave me dominion over all. In the inn at Baldcock, one of the many places visited on this tour of counties, two desperate fellows fell to fighting furiously so that none durst come nigh to part them. But I was moved in the Lord's power, Fox says, to go to them, and when I had loosed their hands, I held one of them by one hand and the other by the other, showed them the evil of their doings, and reconciled them one to the other, and they were so loving and thankful to me that people admired it. After a short visit again to London, where he saw James Naylor and had a foresight that some sad trouble was coming to him, a fear struck me concerning him. Fox started off on a great spiritual campaign through the western counties of England. Edward Pyatt, a former captain, and William Salt of London were his companions in travel. It proved to be hard and barren country for Fox's spiritual message, 
The people were light and flippant. They were not prepared by long spiritual training for the new teaching as the people in the north had been. The travelers found few sober or tender people who were ready to be convinced. At Kingsbridge, in the inn, they found many people drinking, and Fox was moved to the Lord to go in amongst them and direct them to the light which Christ, the heavenly man, had enlightened them with, by which they might see all their evil ways, words, and deeds, and by the same light they might also see Jesus their Savior. The innkeeper stood uneasy, seeing that the speaking hindered his guests from drinking, and as soon as the last words were out of my mouth, he snatched up the candle and said, Come here, it is a light for you to go to your chamber. Next morning, when he was cool, I represented to him what an uncivil thing it was for him to do so. Then, warning him of the day of the Lord, we got ready and passed away. At Plymouth, the cause prospered better, and they had a precious meeting. The Lord's power came over the people here. Many were convinced, among them Lady Elizabeth Trelawney, daughter of a baronet, and a fine meeting was settled there in the Lord's power. Trouble awaited the little party in Cornwall. The magistrates were resolved to have no Quakers in their district. At Mara Zion, which Fox calls Market Jew. The constable summoned Fox and Pyatt to appear before the mayor and aldermen of the town. They had no warrant to make the arrest with, and when Fox asked to see the warrant, one of the constables pulled out his mace from under his cloak and said that was his warrant. Fox, as usual, took the opportunity of delivering his message to the mayor and other officials who seemed to have been impressed and were ready to let the little party go unmolested. But unfortunately, they were met about three miles from the town by an officer belonging to the staff of Major Seeley, who was stationed at St. Ives. The officer took to the Major a copy of a paper which Fox had written and distributed, telling about the light within. This paper aroused Major Seeley and the people of the town, and while the little party was waiting to have a horse shod, and while Fox, meantime, had gone a little way off to look at Bristol Channel, Pyatt and Salt were dragged away to Major Seeley's house. Here Fox found them, surrounded by rude people, more like Indians than like Christians. The proceedings in their examination were very irregular and informal. One of the priests who was present asked Fox why he didn't have his hair cut, and other frivolous things were said and done. Finally, they were put under a guard of soldiers who were hard and wild like the justice himself. Nevertheless, we warned the people of the day of the Lord and declared the truth to them. The next day, he sent us guarded by a party of horse with swords and pistols to Redruth. The next day was Sunday, first day, Fox calls it, but the soldiers were determined nevertheless to travel forward with their prisoners. It was, however, not easy to make progress. Fox insisted on preaching to the soldiers, while Pyatt was at the same time preaching to the townspeople in Redruth. Then Fox went to give his message to the people in the town, 
while Pyatt spoke in his turn to the soldiers. William Salt, meantime, got away and went to the steeple house to give a message to the priest in his congregation. The people got in a mighty rage and came with a rush ready to kill us, Fox says. But I declared the day of the Lord and the word of eternal life to them. When we were got to the town's end, he continues, I was moved to the Lord to go back again. The soldiers drew out their pistols and swore I should not go back. I heeded them not, but rode back, and they rode after me. And without the least fear of the soldiers' pistols, he finished his religious mission in Redruth. In the evening of this strenuous Sunday, the party arrived at Falmouth, then called Smethick, and the chief constable of the town and many sober people came to the inn to have discourse with Fox concerning the things of God, and the tired man's heart was much refreshed. But the rough and lawless soldiers, who were under the direction of a thoroughly unprincipled leader named Keat, continually annoyed and abused Fox and his friends. Keat brought a rude and wicked man into Fox's room at the inn, and this evil-minded man went huffing up and down the room. Fox bade him fear the Lord, whereupon the journal says, He ran upon me, struck me with both hands, and placing his leg behind me would fain have thrown me down, but he could not, for I stood stiff and still and let him strike. The escort was ordered, according to the magistrate's warrant, to conduct the prisoners to the governor of Pendennis Castle, Captain Fox, if he was at home, if not to convey them to Lauceston Jail. As Captain Fox was not at home at the time, the friends had to go on with their roistering escort to Launceston. On their journey thither, they met General Desborough, a brother-in-law of Cromwell, who, under the protector, administered the government in the six western counties. One of Desborough's officers at once recognized Fox and called out to him, "'Oh, Mr. Fox, what are you doing here?' "'I am a prisoner,' the latter replied. "'Alack,' said the officer, "'for what?' Fox explained how he and his party had been arrested while engaged in religious work, and at once the military man offered to speak to Desborough about it and get him freed. The release might easily have been secured had not a discussion arisen about the light of Christ within. Desborough said he did not believe in it and spoke strongly against it. That was too much for Fox to stand, and he reproved the great man, who forthwith told the soldiers to proceed to Launceston. The little party had another miserable night in the inn at Bodmin, not far from their destination. The outrageous captain of the escort, Keat, undertook to put Fox in a room with a raving lunatic, who had a naked rapier in his hand. "'What now, Keat?' Fox cried out. "'What trick hast thou played now to put me into a room where there is a man with a naked rapier?' "'Oh,' said he, Pray hold your tongue, for if you speak to this man, we cannot all rule him, he is so devilish. 
He finally got another room away from the madman, but the hard and darkened soldiers drank and roared all night so that there was no sleep for the weary prisoners. The next morning they were brought to the terrible Cornwall jail at Launceston, where they were to spend the following eight months, from midwinter to early autumn. During the first nine weeks they were decently treated while they were waiting for their trial to come off. At about the spring equinox, Chief Justice Glynn came to Launceston for the trial of the prisoners. The rumor had spread that Fox was likely to be hung, and a multitude of people poured into the little town to see the famous Quaker go by. As the pikemen took Fox through the streets to the courtroom, they had much ado to get through the crowd, which packed the town. As the three Quakers, with hats on their heads, filed into the room before the bewigged Chief Justice, Fox was moved to say, Peace be amongst you. Judge Glynn, with a quizzical look, turned to the jailer and said, What be these you have brought here into the court? Prisoners, my lord, said the jailer. Why do you not put off your hats? the judge asked the prisoners. No answer. Put off your hats. Still, neither answer nor action. The court commands you to put off your hats, sternly said the judge. Then Fox quietly said, Where did ever any magistrate, king or judge, from Moses to Daniel, command any to put off their hats when they came before them in their courts? And if the law of England doth command any such thing, show me that law either written or printed. Take him away, shouted the chief justice. I'll perk him, meaning trounce him. The prisoners were taken out and put in with the thieves who were awaiting trial. Soon the judge had them brought back into the courtroom. Come, said the judge, when had they hats from Moses to Daniel? Come, answer me. I have you fast now. Fox replied, Thou mayest read in the third of Daniel that the three children were cast into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar's command with their coats, their hose, and their hats on. Take them away, shouted the judge. All day the strange proceedings went on in court. Absurd charges, which apparently nobody believed, were made against Fox by Major Seeley. Again and again, the hat issue arose. Once the jailer took off the hats and handed them to the prisoners, who at once put them on again. Finally, the three men were fined, thirteen pounds, six shillings, and eight pennies for contempt of court, and ordered to be imprisoned until the fine should be paid which anybody might know would be never. Up till the time of the trial, the three Quakers had been paying the jailer seven shillings a week apiece for their board and seven shillings for the keep of their horses. After the trial was over, they refused to continue this payment, whereupon the jailer, who was himself a criminal and bore the mark of a branding iron, became fierce with anger and thrust them into the appalling dungeon called Doomsdale. Fox's account of this dungeon is too awful to copy for my readers. 
One wonders how any person could have lived in it at all. In fact, few ever did come out of it alive. It was generally believed in the prison that this dungeon was haunted by the ghosts of those who had died in it, and the jailer and his wild friends tried to scare Fox with this story of the ghosts. But he did not take fright much more easily than Luther did at the devils in worms. I told him, Fox says, that if all the spirits and devils in hell were there, I was over them in the power of God and feared no such thing. We may smile at Fox's refusal to take off his hat in court, which seems to a modern person a harmless courtesy, but nobody can well miss the brave and heroic spirit in this man who looked upon hat honor as downright disobedience to God. About midsummer, an order of the court was issued declaring that the door of Doomsdale should be opened and that the prisoners should have permission to clean up the abominable dungeon and to buy their food in the town. A saintly woman named Ann Downer came down to Launceston from London to cook their food and to give them what human service was allowed in the existing prison system. Another manifestation of love was given which deeply touched Fox's heart. Humphrey Norton went to Cromwell and offered to go to Doomsdale and suffer there in place of Fox, if the protector would give him permission to do it. Of course, this could not be granted, but the request made a deep impression on Oliver Cromwell. He turned to his courtiers and said, which of you would do so much for me if I were in the same condition? Hugh Peters, the famous preacher, chaplain to the protector, told Cromwell that there was no better way to spread the teachings of the Quakers than to keep George Fox shut up in Lauceston Castle. The net result was that an order came from Whitehall to Major General Desborough that some way must be found to free the Quakers who were in Launceston jail. End of chapter 8